last week that I think really in large part enjoyed the reality that we have a really, really good father. I mean, just a wonderfully good father. I, I hope that you believe that. If, if you were here last week, maybe you can connect that message, particular message to that thought. Maybe you already believe that anyway. I hope you do, that we have a very good father. I think uh, hopefully you can think about the fact that a, a good father would not leave his children in the lurch. They're going through circumstances that are hard. Just imagine the kind of father that I, I hope we would all want to be, the, that I hope that we are. If our children are in a difficult situation, we would really want to come to them and help them in that trial and in that difficulty. I believe that if we have a good father, we can expect the same from our father, some real rubber-meets-the-road help. And I'm not talking pie-in-the-sky kind of problems. I'm talking about the problems that you're going through, like real stuff. Those things that you think are maybe completely irrelevant, disconnected completely from what we're doing this morning, I want to just introduce to you the notion that a good father wants you to connect that dot to this dot. To see that what's actually happening here is equipping you and helping you with that there. Just take a moment, just consider the kind of father that we have and trust that he's got to do that. If he's a good father, how could he not? And how would he do that? I would expect that his word would be involved. How's he going to actually give us some help in our troubles? I would expect that his word is going to be involved. If it's truly sufficient for every good work, if it's sharp and it's penetrating, and if it's, oh, that it's alive, that his word's probably going to be involved, and there's probably going to be some measure of regularity, like weekly, like something that Satan is going to say, ah, it's routine and mundane and unimportant and irrelevant and doesn't really connect to the warp and woof of life. All the things that Satan says, God says, this thing that you're doing right now is the very thing where a good father comes alongside you and ministers to you in your trials. <laughs> what a great father we have. We've got to anticipate that today, as we spend these few minutes together, we can trust that this good father that we have is preparing his children in this room in precisely what we're doing in these next few minutes for precisely the stuff that you're going through. That stuff. So let's pray. Let's pray that he'll do that. We'll pray for another church in our community as well. God, we are thankful that before we even really climb into this message this morning, that we can enjoy that we have a good father that will not leave us in the lurch that we have a really good Father that comes alongside us in our, in our lives, in our difficulties, in our struggles, in our triumphs, and everything in between. I'm thankful that you're an involved Father. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you give us access to your heart, your will, your mind, your intentions, your character, through your word, this living instrument that we have a chance to enjoy each week. Lord, I pray that you will use these few minutes that we have together to help connect those dots. That there'll be real connection, real meaning, real relevance. Lord, too, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Roy Youngblood. Uh, pray for his, his marriage, his family. Lord, I pray that you would bless him first and foremost as a worshiper 
and a son of the high king of heaven, Lord, that you would bless him in his studies, that he would see real connection in his own life, first and foremost, and then secondly, in his, in his marriage and his family, and then outward to the people of God at First Baptist Church, Greenville. Lord, we pray that you'd bless that church. Lord, we pray that in this season, as they're readying to celebrate Easter, Lord, that even this morning that they are, their hearts are being prepared to enjoy the perfect sacrifice of our son, our, our shared Savior, your son, on the cross, Lord. Just uh, entrusting them to you this morning. Pray that you bless them. Lord, we love you. We trust you. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 42. As you're turning there, I'd like to give you... Um, I think it's a gift. It was something that was given to me, not directly, but sort of indirectly in what I would call an equipping message on the life of Joseph from an Irish preacher years ago. It's sort of a grid to sort of interpret a lot of life circumstances. Now, it's a coarse grid, and I don't want you to strain this thing out too much, but just kind of look at it as maybe a coarse filter to make sense of lots of stuff in life, and maybe might even give you a new parking place for interpreting some of the stuff that, that you may go through. Okay, here's, here's the first thing I want to introduce you to is a good good. I've got, uh, there's nothing very, uh, nothing spectacular about these slides. It's just a visual where you, maybe if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. A good good. The first time I ever heard these, this teaching was from an Irish preacher years ago. I couldn't find the sermon that I heard years ago, but I did actually find that R.C. Sproul taught this sort of grid, also this interpretive sort of filter. Um, but this, first of all, a good good. Okay, what is a good good? A good good is something that only God can do. Okay, it's something that is just absolutely uninfluenced by man's involvement, by man's motives, by man's sin. Uh, these are only things that God can do that are just plain good. I'll give you a great example, and you can look to creation week and see plenty of good. In fact, each day, I think all but one day, he, he pronounces at the end of the day, this is, this is good. And in fact, on the last day, he says, this is very good. A great picture of something that God has done that man's incapable of. And this is something that's important in this little first category of the good, good. Man is incapable of good goods. Man is incapable of deeds that are uninfluenced by some measure of pride or malice or selfishness. Augustine actually said, our best works are at best splendid vices. We are incapable of good goods, but God does them and God owns them. Okay, good goods, those are his. Okay, the second little category is a bad good. First is a good good. The second category is a bad good. These are good things that are influenced by some measure of human sin or, 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 or failure. Okay? A bad good. Lots of stuff would fit into this category. The good things that we do for someone that often usually have some measure of this makes me feel good in doing it. You understand what I'm saying? If, if we're really honest with ourselves, a lot of times we do something nice for someone that is not solely and completely, absolutely only for them, but some little we measure in it within us where we are kind of doing because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Also in this category of a bad good would, would fit uh, something that, that, that someone does who may not know the Lord, like feeding the poor, clothing the needy, 
Those are good things in and of themselves, but they're sort of temporal goods that have no eternal value. Like giving someone an ear of corn is going to feed them for a meal. Okay, it's a, it's a good thing, but ultimately in the eternal grand scheme, it's a bad thing. Okay, now here's the third part. First is a good good. The second is only God can do. The second is a bad good. The third part is a bad bad. This is something that's just plain bad. Nothing more than evil intent, wicked purposes, and hurtful, destructive outcomes. My mind goes immediately to what I saw on the screen, 9-11, some, how many years ago it was now. This thing that we're watching, this horror that we're watching unfold on the television that is just plain evil and just plain wicked and just plain bad. Some things that we could fit into this bad, bad category would be murder, abuse, acts of terror, and sadly, the list of, of, of these possibilities come to mind. And all we really have to do is look at the news to get great examples of bad bads. We could also consider natural disasters. I went to college. A college buddy of mine, uh, his mom was killed in a tornado in Texas yesterday. I mean, that's just bad. Let's not call it anything else. That's just bad. And we might call it a bad bad, depending on who's involved. So first is a good good, second is a bad good, the third is a bad bad, and the last thing that I'm going to say for later in the morning, not long from now, is a good bad. And I can't say it without also thinking it like an Irishman, a a good bad, is how he said it, a good bad. We're going to save that for later in the morning, we're going to define it. Okay, I want to give you a little summary of the story before we climb into Job chapter 42. We're just going to look at six verses in Job chapter 42. But for those of us that, for those of you that may be joining us for the first time and may not have kind of a scope of the story of Job, here's about a three-minute, maybe five-minute summary. Job was the finest son of the East. Passage tells us, so the scripture tells us. He was blameless and upright. He's a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Those are things that God said about him. This guy was a pretty great guy. He's going about his business of being a micro king is what I called him. And that doesn't mean that he's like a short person, like a little bitty guy. It means he's a king of sort of a micro kingdom in ancient, likely, Edom. Okay, in this context, he's probably kind of like Ben Cartwright on uh, Bonanza. You know, this guy that sort of has a big ranch and a big spread. He's a loving father. He's a loving husband. He fears the Lord. He's a great king to his servants. He's going about his business just being what he is and doing what he's doing. And meanwhile, the sons of God present themselves before the Lord and Satan is among them. It happens twice. These sort of courtroom experiences in chapters 1 and 2. And his God, his good father that we considered last week, our good father. Let's really connect to this story in a meaningful way, this It's not just a story about Job, but it's also a story about our father. Our father served him up like he was a meal to a hungry lion. We've come to grips with that over this story. He served him up. Have you considered my servant Job, you hungry lion, that's prowling around looking for someone to devour? Are you hungry? Man, he's the finest in all the earth. (laughs) There's none like him in all the earth. And then God gives Satan permission to sift him like wheat. He takes all that he owns. He gives it to the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, and the rest is burned up. He loses his herds and his servants. And then a rogue wind, this crazy wind that comes from four cardinal directions at the same time with his house, with his children in it at the epicenter. Okay? This house full of the things that are, the the people that are dear, that, that he loves so dearly, 
on the birthday, likely, the birthday of his oldest son, folds in on them and kills every one of them. Man, terrible, terrible suffering. And if that wasn't enough, Job is then covered with sores and boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The suffering doesn't end there, though. It seemed like that would be enough if you're really considering it all, but the suffering doesn't end there because it continues for chapter after chapter after chapter at the rebukes and the accusations of his supposed friends. And I always use air quotes with these guys because these guys were not true friends. And in each response to these accusations, Job held fast to his integrity. And he cried out to his father for a face-to-face meeting, calling out, in essence, through chapter and chapter, through response to these friends each time, pleading, God, where have you gone? I need to see you. You can hear it in chapter after chapter. Well, last week, Job finally heard from God. Four chapters of the most gorgeous poetry in our Bibles filled with some of the most beautiful creation imagery. Let's just consider for a moment some of the images that came out of that passage. He introduces the stars, the sea, the clouds, the waves, the morning, the dawn, the sea, the earth, snow, hail, rain, thunderbolt, desert, grass, dew, frost, waters, the Pleiades, the Orion, the Maseroth, the bear, lightnings, dust, lions, clods, Raven, mountain goats, wild donkey, ostrich, wild, wild ox, horse, hawk, eagle, the behemoth, and the leviathan. Beautiful, beautiful creation imagery. And he introduced also a very important question. He posed a very important key question to Job that we're sort of, sort, uh, going to sort of explore this morning. In chapter 38, beginning in verse 4. He says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, where were you when the sons of God shouted and cheered at creation. And the implied answer is, Job, you weren't there. You weren't any more there than when the sons of God gathered in chapters 1 and 2 in the high court of heaven. You were missing from that little meeting as well, Job, weren't you? Man, take those images in. He's not there. He's surprisingly absent from chapters 1 and 2. But he's also absent when they cheered at creation, the sons of God. You weren't there when your fate was decided in the high court of heaven, and you weren't there at creation. Okay, so this morning, keep that sort of question in view, and we're going to climb into our passage in chapter 42, looking at verses 1 through 6, at Job's response to God's creation poetry. I'd like to read all, all six verses together, and then we're going to sort of unpack them. And really, the sermon this morning just sort of falls out in the unpacking. But let me read them all together. Let me give you just kind of a bird's eye view before I read it. Job is responding, responding to God's creation poetry. Okay? And he's responding in some ways by bringing up Job's questions, or God's questions, and then answering God's questions. 
Okay, some of these things are little quotes from what God has said in the previous chapters and Job's responses. So I'll sort of call those things to your attention as I'm able. And then in verse 6 this morning, we're going to find a huge statement from Job that really makes sense of the entire book. So we've had a months-long investment in this. It's going to land in verse 6. Okay, so it's a pretty exciting morning. I've had this thought this morning that I kind of didn't want to rush, like I, like I don't want this to end because it's such a gorgeous story and a beautiful, relevant story. But we got to land it somewhere. So we're going to land in verse 6 today, and it's going to be pretty great. Okay, So let's unpack this. I'm going to read the six verses, and then we'll unpack it a few verses at a time. Okay. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, here's a quote from God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job is quoting God from the previous chapters. And then he answers. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here's another quote from God in the previous chapters. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job responds. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, so let's climb into this thing a couple of verses at a time. Verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, in these previous chapters where God is speaking to Job, God reminded Job of all that he knows and all that he has done in creation. And it looks like from Job's initial response here that Job was really listening. He knows God can do all things and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. Okay, just take in the context and remember where Job is. Job is sitting in dust and ashes, having lost everything, and he's acknowledging God's omnipotence. God, you are all-powerful. Now, you haven't done a thing that I can see to save me yet to help me in this mess yet, but I'm acknowledging right here and right now in view of what you've pointed out to me from creation that you can do all things. And on top of that, nothing and no one can hinder your purposes. Let me just kind of throw this out there for you to kind of be thinking about, and I'm going to answer it for you here in a moment, but I'm just wondering about how well y'all know your Bibles. I'm wondering how often you're reading a passage and you're going, "Mm, this sounds like something else. This sounds like somewhere else. And I want to call to your attention a couple of words that come out of this passage, all things and purpose. And I want to give you the chance just to think about those words for a couple moments. And we're going to come back full circle to them in a moment. All things and purpose. And think for a moment about where else you might hear those words come out and come together in a synthesized thought from another one of our biblical writers. Okay, well, let's go back to Job. Job's response to God indicates that he sees purpose in all this. He says, I know you can do all things and that nothing and no one can thwart your purpose. We've got to consider that important point that God is doing something in all of this and Job recognizes it. As Job sits in dust and ashes, having lost everything, Job sees in his father, our good father, purpose in this mess. He sees intention in his mess. He doesn't understand why yet. He sees design and he sees plans because he trusts the God and father that's behind all of it. 
Now, you know, the ancient gods, man, the ancient gods, they viewed, the ancient Greek and Roman gods viewed humans as toys and playthings. And they were unpredictable, they were mean, they were wild. But this God and this Father, Job sees this God and this Father with a, a God of purpose in these difficulties and these struggles. A God with intention, a God with design, and a God with plans. This God is not capricious. This God is not ambiguous or nebulous. This God is not moody. Job doesn't yet understand why this thing had to go down. He didn't understand why all this happened to him, but he understands the who while not understanding the why. The who behind all that happened. And he knows that he is able to do all things and that he has a purpose. Man. Let's look at this. I mentioned a little reference and asked you to consider where a couple of words might come together for you in your mind. All things and purpose. Romans 8, 28. This should be a familiar passage to you. It says, For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This is the first thing I want you to see as we just unpack these passages that all things have purpose when His sons are involved. All things means all things. Corey, put that slide back up, that, that number three slide, the bad, bad slide. Remember when I described the bad, bad, this evil, wicked, terrible thing that you look at and you just go, man, that's just terrible. Okay, here's the crazy news for those who are sons of God, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who, are, who love God. Okay, here's the crazy news for you. There's no such thing as a bad, bad for you. There's plenty of bad stuff that happens, but there's no such thing as a bad, bad for you. Because all things means all things. The thing that you're looking at in your life, that you're thinking, man, this is just unsightly. It's unthinkable. It's unfathomable. I don't even want to think about it. I want to put it out of sight. I want to put it out of mind. I want to get this terrible thing away from me as quickly as possible. That thing is one of the all things that God uses to call you into his presence and to do something wonderful with it. There's no such thing as a bad, bad for his sons. Okay, go ahead to that next slide, the good bad. I told you I was going to define a good bad for you later in the morning, and now is that later. A good bad is a terrible circumstance, something that's really difficult, something that's really hard, that placed in God's hands becomes an ultimate good. It's a terrible circumstance that when, when God's hands are involved becomes an ultimate good because we have a good father that is involving good purpose. Loss of some sort, hurt, sickness, mistreatment. The gamut is in Job. See, the Job is such a beautiful picture for us because so many types of suffering are involved. It's not just these, um, there's natural disasters involved. Okay, There's loss of loved one, there's loss of life, there's loss of property. He's lost his station in life. He's sort of lost his power and his influence. Later on, the surviving uh, servants that he actually has no longer, no longer even recognize him as the Ben Cartwright that he was before. He's not the boss anymore. He's just a, the ugly guy covered with boils. This guy's lost everything. And on top of that, it's not just these physical losses. He's also experienced relational discord. His supposed friends are not turning out to be friends. And the gamut of suffering in Job really opens the door for all of us to look at our little micro-suffering and place it in there and go, yeah, this is really nice. It fits in there somewhere. There's even the, a hint of marital struggle in there. 
where his wife tells him, Job, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? Uh, what a, not so much of an encouragement. His wife encourages him to do the very thing that Satan said he would do when he lost everything. Man, there's a hint that all of our sufferings sort of fit within this story of Job. And we've got to look and see that God actually has purpose in those things in Job. So he's got purpose in those things in our lives. In Job, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Like God meant it for good. There's some intention and some purpose in that. When his children are involved, God turns terrible things like, just consider, like this for example, if you could imagine a story where somebody has 11 brothers and gets beaten up by those brothers, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? That's a bummer. Get beaten up by those brothers, that'd be bad. But then imagine if those brothers beat you up and they throw you into a pit. Ugh. Man, that would hurt. You know, you're getting beaten up by your brothers. Just the, the emotional pain in that, on top of the physical pain that my brothers are beating me up. They're throwing me into a pit. Hey, that's bad enough in and of itself. But then imagine that those very same brothers sell you into slavery. <laughs> what? Yes, they, they actually sell you for money, for currency into slavery. And then they go home and tell your dad, their dad, that you died. Some uh, critter killed you. Okay, so you're sold into slavery, and then you go off into slavery, but you're going to be a good servant, you're going to be a good slave, and you're working for this master, and the master's wife then lies about you, and you're thrown into prison. <laughs> Man, could this get any worse? Uh, well, yeah, it actually could, where you actually start interpreting dreams, and then you're promised, hey, we're going to get you out of here, we're going to break you out, a jailbreak, but then they forget about you, and you languish in prison. Man, this is really sounding bad. It sounds like what good could possibly come out of this? being forgotten in prison on top of all of it. And yet this God and this Father uses those very things for good, for his purposes. Joseph said to his brothers, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, like what you did, all that you did, and all that everything else that happened to me, for good God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's a beautiful picture of a good bad, a good bad. Man, people of God, we live in good bads. We live in good bads. I can look around this room and I know the bads. I know the hard stuff you're going through. And you've got to know that in Christ, when you are related to this good father by faith in Christ... It is going to be ultimately a good thing. God's going to use all things together for good. Yes, even that thing. Because that's the kind of father that we have. Okay, let's go back to Job and look at verse 3. That's verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 3. Okay, here's God speaking. God, and our, Job is quoting God. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job's response, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Okay, his response here is beautiful because basically what he's saying is, I did not understand all this. And in fact, he's saying, I do not understand all this. And I'm seeing now this wonderful relief that I don't have to understand all of it. I don't understand why this stuff happened to me. I don't understand how these things happen. I don't understand what you're up to, God. I trust that there's intention, that there's purpose, and there's design. But I'm realizing now that I don't have to understand it. This is a huge relief. For us, I think at this point, and especially for Job. 
I only have a couple satellites for you to turn to this morning, and this is one of those satellites. Turn to Psalm 73. I asked you to study retribution theology in my uh, little kind of heads up email this week. Retribution theology, which is really, if you want to summarize retribution theology, it is uh, getting what you deserve. This sort of notion of God moving in this way and this thing, uh, this, this truth, this ultimate and absolute truth that people get what they deserve. Okay? I want you to kind of keep that thought in view as I read from this psalm, Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. We're just going to see what Asaph is reckoning with and what he's wrestling with here to see if he might be wrestling with some of the things that maybe you might wrestle with with this conversation about getting what you deserve or don't deserve. As you're trying to wrestle with understanding, we're going to actually have a view into guy that's wrestling with understanding. Okay? Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, this guy is really linear. <laughs> Right? He's like black and white. Man, these guys are bad guys, and there's actually some good stuff going on there. They're prospering. I saw good things happening to bad people, and I almost stumbled. Let's see what he has to say. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. These guys are well-fed, these wicked people. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out. Through fatness. God. This guy has really studied these people who are prospering, right? Their eyes are even puffy. They're so fat. It makes me mad. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I mean, can anybody identify with Asaph and go, yeah, that makes me mad? Can anybody really? I mean, I can. I have a very defined sense of justice and right and wrong. It makes, that's what makes it difficult for me to forgive people. Man, really, really defined sense of justice and what's fair and what's right. Is anybody identifying with me as we're reading saying, yeah, Asaph, great questions. He says, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Man, you can hear retribution theology in Asaph so far. You can hear him saying, you're supposed to get what you deserve, and it's not working out that way, God. This guy is struggling with understanding. I can't make sense of this. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I couldn't make sense of the inequity. I couldn't make sense of the injustice until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Man, if you're like me, you can identify with this guy, this Asaph, struggling with this thing we're calling retribution theology, struggling with this notion that people should get what they deserve. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Why is good stuff happening to the wicked, God? That's Asaph's question. And why are the clean stricken and rebuked is what he said. He said, I can't understand it and it's become a wearisome 
task. Later on in the passage, in verse 22 and 21 and 22, he says, My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That's a great characterization of how Job was at times in these previous chapters where he's clamoring for understanding. And the psalmist here says understanding at this point was a wearisome task. Thankfully, thankfully, he landed on trusting the Lord in verses 25 and 26. He says, whom am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's a beautiful psalm that sort of fits nicely with Job's testament. His response to God's words, his response to this entire encounter is this realization that I can't make sense of any of this, but I'm going to land on trusting you. Though you slay me, I will trust you. We don't have to understand it. I want to just give you a word of encouragement. For those of you who, like me, might struggle with this notion of retribution theology, if those of you like me that might struggle with this thought that you're supposed to get what you deserve, if you have a super developed sense of justice and rightness and fairness and the the understanding thing just becomes, i got to make sense of this, i got to understand it, and if your ultimate desire is craving for fairness and justice, then let me encourage you with this thought. You need to go find another religion. If that's what drives you, you need to go find another religion. And really, frankly, any other religion will do. If you want that God, he's all the other gods. That's going to pay you your due. Christianity is altogether different. Christianity stands in stark contrast to all those other gods and all those other religions where you get your due. Man, Christianity is the crazy, crazy story where actually some good things happen to people that don't deserve it. Man, Christianity stands out in stark contrast to all the others as good news that good things happen to bad people, really the goodest of things. I'm going to make up a word and I'm going to be fine with it. The goodest of things has happened to people who are bad, people who are dead in our trespasses and sins, people who even our best efforts are filthy rags. Man, if you're stuck on this thing of fairness and this thing of justice and you clamor over this thing, this retribution theology notion, let me just enjoy, let me just encourage you. Go find another religion. Or you can land back on Christianity and go, okay, let me rest in this scandal where actually bad people are blessed with something good. And let's say some one good. But let me flip that around. In the same Christian economy where bad people are blessed with something good, the only true good person was crucified. Man, Christianity stands out in stark contrast to everything else in the world offered. If you want to die on the hill of retribution and fairness, then you're going to have to get rid of the gospel that you and I are walking in. The scandal of something really, really great being blessed and given to people who don't deserve it. While a good thing has happened to bad people, a terrible thing has happened to the only real good person, and it's called the cross. In the Christian economy, the good guy gets crucified. That's the message of Job, people. 
If you can't make sense of what's happened to Job, you've got to look at it through the lens of the gospel. That's what's happened in Job. God sacrifices his sons to bring them into his presence because that's what he does as a good father. And he doesn't sacrifice ugly, buck-toothed, three-legged lambs. He sacrifices unblemished, fine, blameless sacrifices like Job, like his very own son. Let me just encourage you with this thought. If you can't understand what God might be up to, if you struggle with this notion of why are these things happening to me, and God, I thought, I really want to appeal to fairness, let me just encourage you with a passage. It's a proverb. And ironically, it comes from Proverbs. It sort of hits me as this linear book. Early on in the book of Proverbs in chapter 3, it says, you know, it's almost this thought. You can just listen. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs, this linear thought, this linear book where, hey, man, if you do this and this is going to happen. But early on in the book, there's sort of this thing. But, yeah, things are usually going to go this way if you do this. But let me just prepare you for when they don't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's a great place to land. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I don't get it. And I don't have to. (laughs) Verses 4 and 5 of Job 42. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I want you to see this beautiful response, this beautiful comment. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. He's quoting God the Father there. And then he responds. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, now having experienced all this suffering, having experienced all this loss, now through the squinting eyes of suffering, I now see you. You see the vast difference between hearing of him and seeing of him and seeing him? Can you see the massive difference between hearing of a great restaurant in Dallas and actually going and sitting and dining? Can you see the massive difference of hearing about a great band and then actually going and hearing it in concert and hearing those speakers actually make your guts vibrate because they're so loud and you want to dance and you think it's awesome. Big difference, right? Hearing about him, hearing of him and seeing him is a massive difference. There's a big difference between reading about Everest, between watching documentaries, between reading books and reading uh, papers and reading Testimonies from people who've climbed Everest. There's a big difference between studying Everest and imagining every step of it and then actually climbing it. There's a massive difference between reading it and then experiencing the wonder and the terror of it, all 29,000 feet of it. That's what Job is saying. I had heard of you, but now I see you. I've been drawn into your presence through suffering. He was sacrificed and sublimated. Remember that word? Sublimated is what happens on the altar when something is burned up. It's sublimated. It becomes a gas and comes into his presence. Job has officially been burned up. And he's sublimated into the presence of his father. I'd heard of you, but now I see you. <laughs> and then in verse 6, here we are. Here we are. Land in the plain. <laughs> it says, therefore, therefore, 
knowing that you all do all things, that you're capable of doing all things and that you do all things with purpose, knowing that I don't have to understand what you're doing to still trust you, okay? Knowing that I had heard of you before, but now I'm seeing you through the squinting eyes of suffering. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Let's just break down those two phrases. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. First, I despise myself. Actually, in the original Hebrew, there is no myself in there. There's just I despise. And actually, the word in Hebrew actually means I loathe. I loathe. We just insert myself in there because the translators insert myself in there, I guess, just because. I don't know why. But actually, there's a couple other places where this word is used, I despise, in the book. In chapter 7, verse 16, he says this, I loathe my life. And then across the page in, in chapter 9, verse 21, he says, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. I think a, 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 fitting, a more fitting translation there would be, I loathe, I despise, not myself, but my life, which makes a whole lot of sense. I like this kind of follower of God that actually says, you know what, my life is really terrible. Man, Job is saying, my life is a mess. I've lost it all. I'm sitting here covered in boils. The only person in my family that's still alive is encouraging me to curse God and die. So yeah, my life pretty much is terrible. I loathe my life. I thank him for the honesty. Thank you, Job. This weird Christian response when your life is coming unglued and you say, ah, God's good all the time. All the time, God is good. Like, man, let's really be honest. Can you say, no, I loathe my life right now. This is terrible. Call it what it is. Job says, I loathe and despise this life. He's lost everything. There's no rose-colored glasses for Job. No thanks. I'm going to call it what it is. See, here's the cool thing. He's not thankful for his circumstances, but he's thankful in his circumstances. You understand the difference? It's not the Christian thing to do to say, Lord, thank you for cancer. Thank you for giving this young boy cancer. Thank you, God. Man, what's wrong with you if you want to do that? But you can't say, God, thank you for what you're going to do in it. The scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, be thankful in all circumstances, not be thankful for all circumstances. Thank you, Job, for really being honest and saying, this sucks. I've lost it all. And I despise and loathe my life. If you don't see how he's responded there, you're not going to appreciate what he says next. I despise and loathe my own life. Man, Jesus said it in the garden, didn't he? Did you hear his prayer? Take this cup from me. You don't hear him say, thank you. Thank you for letting me down on a cross. I'm so excited. Take this mess from me. But not my will, but yours. Man, be thankful in all circumstances. You don't have to be thankful for the circumstances. But watch how he responds next. Okay, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. Now, let me just take that word for a moment, repent. That same word is translated in Job seven other times as comfort. I'm comforted. You have to realize, I want you to trust the translation that's in your lap and in your hands right now. Okay? 
But I want you to understand that our translators bring their theology to their translations. How they read things come out in translation. If you have an ESV, I love my ESV translation. If you have an ESV, you can look down at the bottom of the page. It's got a tiny little one down at the bottom. Is it a one? Let me find the page so I can tell you what actually the number is. Chapter 42, down at the bottom of the page in verse 6. Yes. I repent. Uh, I despise myself. I repent. There's a little one. Look down at the bottom of the page. Or I am comforted. Seven other times in the book of Job, that word is translated as comforted. Do you understand how it changes the whole meaning of the book? You understand how it changes the whole meaning of Job's response? You understand how it changes to God's response to him in the previous chapters? Where it wasn't a tongue lashing putting him in his place because he's a sinful, dirty little dude? It fits with what he said about him. He's the finest son of the East. It fits what he said. He's blameless, upright. He fears the Lord. And he turns away from evil. It fits everything that he said about him. This guy doesn't need to repent. He's not repenting here. He says, I'm comforted in the mess, in this life I despise. I'm comforted. Why? Because now I've seen your face. People of God, that's that's the carrot. you got to understand. That's the carrot. We pray like the carrot is getting all our stuff back. We pray like the carrot is the cancer is gone, the job comes back, the wife comes back, the money comes back, everything goes back our way. You know, the carrot actually for Job is I've seen your face and I'm comforted still in the mess. I'm covered in boils. My children are all still officially dead. My wife is still officially alive. (laughs) But I've seen your face and I'm comforted. Now, the boils covering my body are, actually feel better when I scrape them with potsherds, okay? They're that painful, but yet I'm comforted because I've seen you. I've heard of you before now, but now I've seen your face. I'm comforted in the mess. I'm not comforted because the mess is gone, because it's still there. I'm comforted in the mess, having experienced Everest. Man, I just have one thought for you all this morning, really just one closing thought, trying to make sense of this book. We have one more sermon in Job, and I'll share with you at the end of the morning our plan there. If I could summarize what what we've seen this morning, I think what we've seen over these past few months, we started the book off saying that Job is a book about what God does with his sons. We're not just talking gender. I'm talking daughters, too. If, you, if you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. His children. Okay, it's a book about sons because the sons are everywhere. Repeated words all over the book of Job. Sons, 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 sons. Remember this question that I brought up a moment ago when I read it in God's big poetic, creative response to him. You remember this section I read? I'm going to read it again for you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Implied, you weren't there. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together. And listen, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, Job? You weren't there. 
You weren't there then, and you weren't there in the first two chapters when the sons of God presented themselves before me. But guess what? Through the sublimating work of suffering, through his, even his response, four chapters of creative information, he says, I'm bringing you into the circle. I'm bringing you into the throne room. Now you can stand before me as one of the sons of God. You were the finest son of the east, but now I'm making you a son of God through the sublimating work of suffering. And I think that's the punchline. I think that's the final point of Job. What is God doing? What's his ultimate purpose in our suffering and our pain and our struggles and the things that we go through, these things that I asked you to connect, those dots, these little micro crosses that we carry are to bring us into his presence because he's the carrot. He's the carrot. He's the destination. He is the treasure. Man, I see this in this passage, this response to Job, all this creative work. You weren't there when I created, but let me tell you about creation so I can bring you in. I just want to ask you to maybe consider those things that you're going through or have gone through that may have lasting, lingering effects. I thought about some of the micro crosses that we carry. Job is so beautiful, it gives us the gamut. Some of the micro crosses, maybe being ashamed. Maybe something's happened that brought shame. Walking in shame. Man, I've really failed. I've really fumbled this. And I'm walking in this heavy weight of shame. I'm walking in a season of having been wronged, misunderstood, devalued. I want to just encourage you with that actual thing that I'm talking about there that maybe you've gone through. To actually connect that to fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings for a purpose of bringing you into his presence. That's not the only micro crosses. There's tons of them. Cancer, death, sickness, blindness, deafness, lameness. These micro crosses, these just things that happen. Things that God's going to use, though, because we know he's not capricious. We know he's not nebulous. We know he's not uh, moody. We know he's not playing with us like we're toys. He's actually doing something for a purpose, to bring us and sublimate us into his presence. Man, the micro crosses of discord and conflict and the pain associated with that is a God drawing you into his presence. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. There are no bad bads for us. Lots of good bads, good bads, lots of them. And he uses all of them, all things. God works with those good bads to bring you into his presence. And in the mess, in the mess, you are comforted. Let's pray. God, what a fine book. What a fine story. What fine view into your purposes and intent. God, I'm thankful that you use these painful things to sublimate us, to burn us up. God, I'm thankful that you don't waste that stuff. I'm thankful we're not your playthings and your toys, but you're a good father. I'm thankful for this wisdom book that takes us to this wise place of seeing a good father with purpose. Or give us a new set of eyes for our circumstances. Help us connect the dots. The things that we have seen, maybe have considered or observed as completely not having a place, Lord, give us a place to put that now as a good bed. 
Uh, we love you, Lord. We're so thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.